Welcome to Engaging and Empowering School Libraries, a podcast that aims to raise the profile of school libraries by talking about topics that are current across education and teaching. Today, we are revisiting our discussion around ChatGBT and AI. As this new technology unfolds, it's important to continue talking about our new learning and the impact these tools will have on education, but especially on on school libraries. We're joined today, as always, by my co-host and librarian, Sabrina Cox, and our guests are Daryl Turian, Head of Inquiry Learning, and Jenny Turian, School Librarian and EPQ Coordinator, both at Blanchetown College in Guernsey, and Dr. Kay Odin, Odone, Course Director and Lecturer, Master of Education, Teacher Librarianship at Charles Stewart University, Australia. Thank you all for joining me today. Did I get your name Thank right, you. Kay? Odoni. Odoni. That's all right. It's- it's not oh. that common. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me how many years? Ten years to get Daryl's surname right, and I'm still not sure I've got it quite right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we'll just skirt over that one. Anyway, welcome, and, and I'm glad that you could join me today. So I wonder if you would mind starting us off, Kay, by explaining your understanding of AI, since there might be some people listening today who are unfamiliar with the topic. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much, firstly, for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to be chatting about this topic. It's really um, something that I have gotten really excited about, especially because of the ways that it can really change our role working in school libraries, I I believe. Um, So I wanted to say that uh, I am not a computer scientist and everything that I say is just my understanding from all of my reading and engagement with research and literature and blogs and posts and magazines there's been so many and what I've what I've gathered is that AI and artificial intelligence has been in has been in existence you know for around 70 years and it's been in schools for about 50 years in some form or another um, it, obviously 50 years ago it was extremely experimental but it's not this Thing that we've never had anywhere in schools before, but that late last year when ChatGPT was launched, it was suddenly this whole explosion of, wow, the general public um, was introduced to this concept of generative AI. And a lot of people working in that industry, I'm sure, was thinking it it had been going on for a long time as well, but we've never really, as, as lay people, been able to engage in such a straightforward way with this technology. And I think our understanding of AI is we can't help but have it shaped by popular culture. So we've had those all those movies, you know, Blade Runner and Computer saying, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't help you or I can't do that for you. Um, you know, we've had uh, Terminator, all those types of things. And so we automatically think robots and uh, computers that are going to take over the world and all of those things. But what I've gathered from my reading is that what those examples are, are general AI and super AI, and we're not there yet. We are still in narrow AI, which is where um, basically narrow AI is machine learning. And it's where an application or a series of algorithms, this is where my terminology is going to be incorrect according to computer people. Uh, But it's set out to solve one problem and specializes in one area. 
So ChatGPT seems like it solves lots of problems or, or creates lots of problems, depending, mm -hmm. but um, it basically is creating a conversational response to a prompt and then how you use that and, um, response and when you use it and how you use it. The same with the image generator uh, platforms like DALI and um, Stable Diffusion and Midjourney, they, their job is to generate images. Um, some apps will now will be able to generate images and video or like, but they're basically responding to one task. And so this whole GI, GAI, generative AI, is um, focusing on creating that new content like text, images, code, music. And this is what's really bringing us all to attention because we've always associated learning or knowledge or understanding with being able to generate information on that thing. Um, and we've always had that human concept of we're the only ones who can create things. We're the only ones who can create art. We're the only ones who can create music. Animals can't do that. You know, the, it's a human brain thing. And now we've got these computers these this that can do these things. So it's that's why I think it's really grabbed us right now even though it's been around for a while. And that's my understanding of what it is. It's, it's still just a, a tool, a technology that does a particular task in that, response that, to our really, request. That, that's really clever actually, Kay, because um, I would have said that, uh, and you're right, I, I think the narrowness of it hadn't really hit me until you just said what you've said. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I think of narrow being those chatbots that you come across on your banking app. Because yeah. they, can't, they can't tell you what the weather is like. They can only tell no. you banking questions. But actually, I hadn't really thought of things, something like ChatGPT as narrow. But you're right. It can't produce photographs. It, it can't create music. Well, it's got one task. It yeah. can't think across a number of different uh, prob solve problems and apply things across. It can't say it's a sunny day today and I'm feeling warm. Therefore, I'm going to make a salad for lunch rather than a soup. What will I need for the salad? It can't make those connections across that we can do, which is more general in general AI. That's that's what general AI can do. It's a computer that's as smart as a human across the board. And then the super AI is an intellect that's much smarter and and even has things like emotions and consciousness. And that's like in Blade Runner. So that's what they're worried about, yeah. but it's not what we have at the moment. Not if there, you think yeah. about it technically. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> so can I bring Daryl in? You know, how do we think that AI, like there's a lot of talk in, in education, isn't there? The, the This fear factor of, of um, students going to plagiarise and, you know, use ChatGPT to, to write their essays for them. Um, that aside, how do you think AI is going to fit into education going forward? Like, and I know we're needing a crystal ball here, but, but do we think that the things that schools are currently worrying about are the things that they should be focusing on? Yeah, so I think picking up on what Kay said, um, the, the, the difficulty in answering that question is that from my perspective, at the moment and for the foreseeable future, 
um, because of both limitations in the technology, but also I think some pretty profound philosophical, um, ethical and legal problems that certainly at the moment seem insurmountable unless you just ignore them. Um, on a practical level, I can't see in the foreseeable future how this kind of AI makes much, if any, practical difference to my work with high school students, secondary school students. Um, and the reason for that is that I think, so, the, so the, the, the two main problems are, um, firstly, it's unreliability. So the way that that technology is most likely to be used by students is as a, a advanced search engine. So the problems that we had before of students typing a question into Google, Google leading them to Wikipedia, regardless of how accurate Wikipedia is or isn't, copying the thing that looks like it answers the question um, and giving it back to the teacher, that seems to me, and the thing that people seem to be most frightened about, um, is how that technology is going to be used. Um, so in that sense, I think AI at the moment and for some time into the future, I think is, is a distraction because it's going to pull us away from the more fundamental and more difficult task really of helping our students to learn how to think for themselves using a range of tools of which generative AI at the moment is one um, flawed tool. Yeah. You you mentioned legal and ethical. What 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 do you mean by by that? What what are the things that we need to be thinking about? So they they, they seem to me to be large, um, large and largely unanswered questions about where these programs. Um, where and how these programs have gathered their information. So in, in the sense that Kay was talking about earlier, um, they, they create things by recombining existing things. Now, those existing things belong to people, and some of that is freely available and some of it isn't. So I think the companies, so, so that's where I think the legal and the ethical um, merge, because the companies that have created these tools um, and allowed these tools to train on data that is available, they're very secretive about where they've got that information from and what happens behind the scenes with that information. Um, so I think so there are, are a number of are, are legal there, are we are we saying then? So I was just thinking about my content that's up on the internet. Uh, do am I understanding it right that that in this scrape of information that it's taken from the internet, that 
that all of my content is probably somewhere sat in ChatGPT because it's just freely available. I think up to up to a certain point, because I think that was one of the big leaps. So when um, ChatGPT first appeared, um, it didn't have access, as far as, I, as far as I understand it, it didn't have access to the open internet. Um, but at a certain point, it, it was kind of let loose on the open internet um, and what it has scraped up and what it's done with it um, is quite difficult to determine. Um, and then I think that's where it crosses over into the ethical because uh, companies who produce this have an agenda and it's very unlikely that that agenda, I think it's very unlikely that that agenda has our best interests at heart. Yeah. Um, so what it is that you are exposing yourself to is a very complex question. I'm not sure that schools at the moment are really well equipped, well, in, well enough informed and well enough equipped to be making wise decisions um, about how to use it, even if you get over the hurdle of whether um, children below a certain age are allowed to or ought to. Yeah. Can I bring Jenny in? Yeah, and I think that there's oh, clearly in some ways in schools we have to deal with it because it's it's out there. So even if in schools that's as part of an education programme to explain the legal and ethical issues, we're going to have to deal with it somehow. Um, but there's all sorts of issues beyond you've got the academic integrity issues of the, the systems themselves, which is what Daryl was talking about there, but also above and beyond that if they're scraping information and they're not telling you where it comes from or if they are telling you where it comes from we can't always trust that they have been known quite frequently to make up their citations um then it just blows out of the water completely um any sense that a student can look at the provenance of their sources and work out how trustworthy they are based on where the information comes from because you have no idea where the information comes from and that has all sorts of other implications in terms of um, bias. So we've known for a long time that um, things like facial recognition systems um, have major issues or have had major issues. They may be getting better with things like racial bias. Um, it's clear that some of that is there at the moment in the, the, um, the AI systems. Um, it's clear that there are other biases there based on the data they've been trained on. And a lot of that will be skewed by, not, not even necessarily intentionally, but skewed by the background of the companies that are producing them um, and where they're originally getting their information from. So we can't deal with that bias um, because we can't understand it because we can't look at the sources. And actually there's a lot of education that we have to do in schools um, at some point, and it's very difficult to do that, certainly lower down, because we're dealing with problems information anyway is difficult. Um, but at a point in schools and in universities where it's appropriate to be even thinking about this, um, I wouldn't be comfortable sending my students out to use these as sources for inquiry at the moment, because I don't think most adults really understand the major issues with them. So well, we, we a student, off you go, use that. 
Absolutely, absolutely. We had this um this lawyer in America recently, didn't we? That he was um, you know, using sources from ChatGPT in a in a case, and and possibly, well, I won't say he lost his job, but I think he was in a lot of trouble. Um, can I bring Sabrina in? Sorry, Sabrina. Sorry. Yeah, I've got there, got there. <laughs> too many buttons, too many buttons. It's too early in the morning. Um, right, so the other day on Twitter, I came across a thread of a English teacher who'd actually said, right, we know ChatGPT has these flaws. We know we can't rely upon it for its resource, you know, its source information and everything. We know it's it's flawed. So what he did is he, set, he asked ChatGPT a question on the topic that the English students were doing, printed off the information that it gave him, he then gave it to his students and said, right, you're now going to critically analyze and mark this assignment. And he said what they actually got from that was really positive because they were pulling out where things were wrong. They were pulling out sentence structure that was wrong. They were pulling out things that had been made up. And he goes, he felt that actually they learned from that about being able to write a cohesive and evidence-based essay rather than just going online and making something up. And he thought they actually valued that a lot more than, like you say, just being sent out and trying to do something. So I don't know if, you know, we're aware of all the flaws and all that, and we use them as a tool itself. Do you want to come, I, I don't know, Daryl, do you want to come back in? and uh, I, <laughs> um, I noticed Kay, Kay's hand was Kay. up before mine. Yeah, Kate, okay. do you want to come in then? <laughs> oh, I just, I, that was along the same lines of what I was going to say was that I think these tools at the moment, it, because they're developing so rapidly and because there is so much that's unclear about them, like Daryl was saying, uh, and there's all these ethical and legal questions and all these different complex uh, issues, what I think is dangerous is that people get bogged down in coming up with exciting new activities to try and incorporate these uh, uh, generative AI tools, thinking they're doing the right thing by embracing and not blocking and um, but spending too much time on using the tool as it is right now and and when really, if we just use ChatGPT as an example, the free one is just a little sandpit that they OpenAI has thrown out there for us to basically play with as part of their experiment to see <laughs> what it can learn from what we're putting in. And that's why it says, you know, don't put in personal information, don't put in, you know, because it's made it very, they're very open. They're actually, they're not at this point, they don't appear to be as evil as some other Tech, tech companies, um, they're trying, it appears, to be very open. It's all still testing grounds. And it's going to be like that for, I think, a long time. It's in beta, basically. And ChatGPT4, which you have to pay for, and I don't have because you have to pay for it, and unis don't pay for that sort of thing, um, <laughs> is, um, is sort of steps ahead. But it's, and, it, and that's sort of giving us an idea of where it's all going to go but to bog down now in that I think that what's better is to be looking at working with students to build their knowledge and discuss the ethics discuss the legalities discuss and to use the output that it's creating now as part of your lesson to build that anal analysis and critical analysis of information use you can't use crap the crap test with 
ChatGPT information because currency, well, it was just generated seconds ago, you know, and um, accuracy, questionable, authority, authority of the author, who knows, you know, it just doesn't apply. It's spelling is always perfect. Grammar is always perfect. All those things that we've had on those checklists before just don't work. But lateral reading is one way that we can show students this is one source of information, read a couple of other sources from different, and let's see if we can identify if there is bias. Let's see if we cannot identify whether or not this information is accurate. Um, you know, all of those types of things by comparing across and using it as a tool to build the skills that students are going to need and, and do need already, but because it's like, um, Jenny said it's not going away and it's going to be embedded more and more in, in, in Microsoft, in, in all different tools, underpinning all different tools. So we need to be looking at, what, okay, what are, what's the knowledge and skills that students are going to need to deal with this stuff rather than get students skilled up in how to use ChatGPT 3.5 because ChatGPT 3.5 is like a one second thing that's going to be over and gone. It's already over and gone. We've got four, you know, it's let's not put our energy in the wrong places and lead our students that way also is my personal opinion yeah no I think that that's it, that is really important isn't it is that is that it's about focusing on on what is important rather than the the playing with with what is there it, yeah it's sort of changing the the Changing the conversation or the direction, I think, is really important. Daryl, can I bring you back in or was it Jenny? <laughs> I think the, just to pick up now on, on what both Sabrina and Kay said, you know, I think one of the things that we, we as school librarians need to be aware of, um, and I think that's why Kay, Kay's position um, is, is good because she's in a university, but working with teacher librarians who are working in schools. Because I think one of the, 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 the difficulties is that a, a lot of the stuff that is being written about um, this topic is coming from a university context. Now, what I as a lecturer can do with university level students is very different from what I can do um, in my school uh, with 13 year olds. So I have enough difficulty um, with my 13-year-olds of getting them to make sense of information that is accurate. Um, if I were to throw into the mix, so I think it would be irresponsible, it would be wrong of me as a librarian to deliberately expose those students to information that is inaccurate unless I have enough time, and the purpose of that is, um, as Kay was touching on, to um, show them that some information is not accurate. Uh, and I think the thing that um, Kay then said re um, re reminded me of um, Bob, Barbara Stripling always argued that the librarian is a teacher of sense-making skills. Now, that is actually our focus. Our focus is on helping students to learn from information using whatever tools are appropriate and necessary, whatever resources are appropriate and necessary. 
And I think the second we shift our focus from that, the process of learning from information and the skills that are required to do that, not the tools, the second we focus to the tools is the second we become distracted and drawn into stuff that takes us further and further away from um, the really urgent task that we're called to, I think, as school librarians. So I think that's, go on then, um, can I bring Jenny in? And I think we also have to understand that we're not just working with students. So some of the very keen early adopters of ChatGTP and all the other AI systems are staff, teaching staff. Um, and as librarians, we have a role to help teaching staff and school leaders to understand the dangers and pitfalls and the good ways of using these things and the ways that are really tempting and really exciting, but possibly not so great. Um, and certainly something I've, I've heard around quite a bit is this sense of, this is so wonderful, these things do your thinking for you. And you're like, actually they can't think. One of the things AI doesn't do is think. Um, and there's a lady, um, Emily M. Bender, who's a professor of computational linguistics at um, University of Washington. And she wrote a paper about AI, uh, and she called them stochastic parrots. So this idea of random processes evolving over time and speaking it back, they are scraping huge bundles of information and pulling little bits that kind of make sense and putting them together and making it sound like they're thinking and they're not. So I think one of the, the kind of nightmare scenarios for education is excited teaching staff adopting these things to do their thinking for them to set the assignments and excited students adopting these things to do their thinking for them to do the assignments and then you get the computers talking to each other and nobody's learning anything. Yeah, and, and that, that's brought up a really interesting point is the fact that it isn't human, is it? And and the way the terminology we use mm -hmm. to describe what it does makes it feel human. Mm -hmm. So so it thinks, it replies, it talks, it has a conversation. All of these are human-like activities, but actually it, it's not doing that. It's putting the next word in the sentence that actually it's been taught to do. Um, hey, you brought up an interesting one about lateral. Uh, actually, before I move on, does Daryl or Jenny want to say something more about that? Yeah, I just wanted, um, in terms of the terminology, um, because one of the things that I put into the um, the Fossil Group Forum post uh, uh, um, topic on, on this was uh, Douglas Engelbart's idea of augmented intelligence and i think that gets it right so um he was saying that we live in a world where the the, the problems are so complex and so existentially threatening that we absolutely desperately need some way to augment human intelligence in order to help us to solve these problems um, so in that sense, anything that helps us to think better and to think more effectively, um, and he was saying particularly collectively, we can't solve these problems individually. Um, so anything that can help us, that can augment the intelligence um, singly and collectively, 
Uh, we desperately need those things. But I and, and I think that's where talking about augmented intelligence keeps the focus right. As soon as we start talking about the technology and focusing on the technology, that's when we get drawn into, well, that's when I think that becomes a, a distraction. Yeah. Can I bring Kay back in? Oh, that's ex I was thinking along those lines, thinking about how it's a really great opportunity for school librarians to take this leading role to sort of, yes, it's exciting. And yes, there's lots of um, things that are possible and, and these computers that seem like they can think and are human, but they're not, they're essentially pattern matches. Um, but what I think the school librarian can do is can bring it back to, um, re bring people back to reality. And a couple of ways they can do that is firstly by having discussions about not just the bad, but the good of, of AI and, or, and generative AI and, and this, these technologies in that um, they, they are going to help if used you know, in a positive way, they are going to help us solve medical problems, environmental problems, those sorts of problems that require processing of in so much data that's beyond humans that we need to augment our thinking about um, you know, augment our own intelligence by using these tools to solve these problems so that process so much data about medical, you know, problems that some solution might be identified that could never have been done by humans because we just can't process that quickly. Bring those things up. But then on a more school context scale, perhaps broaden people's horizons by think, saying, yeah, chat GPT is one thing there's a whole lot of other tools out there as well. And they're all generative AI and they all do different things uh, and they can all be used in learning and teaching in different ways. For example, we, we've got a tool like Perplexity AI, which is com combination of Google and ChatGPT. So when you put in your, you don't put in a search term, it says, ask me a question. You ask your question and it will come up with an answer like it's ChatGPT, but it will provide the, web, the, the websites where it got the answers from. So you can use that to demonstrate to students. This is, you know, this is a, a middle ground step here. We, we've got the answer like in ChatGPT, but it's actually telling you where the answers are coming from. Now let's look at those sources and analyze those sources critically and see and talk about why did it choose those particular sources? Are they actually the best sources that, why would a, why would a computer who knows, who knows, who is able to access so much, choose those particular ones and talk about search engine optimization and, and the fact that these computers are, technologies are profit making creations, not educational creations and things like that. Talk about how there's gen there's generative AI in apps like Duolingo, in apps like Grammarly and Quillbot. That's all the same. They're all large language models too. And we get hung up on ChatGPT. Our school librarian could be saying, hey, let's broaden our understanding of this generative AI landscape so that we can start to see that it's not all black and white, good and bad, 
Um, it's not all just about plagiarism. It's about a much bigger concept that we therefore need to, as a school staff, as a school community, have discussions about, have ethical dis discussions about the ethics, have discussions about how they might be used, whether they should be used, um, and do those things, have those conversations with students as well. So Absolutely. I just think that's something that school librarians are really well positioned to do because they're the information and digital literacy leaders, but they have the connections with the, and in school, in you know, places where it's teacher librarian, that teaching and pedagogical knowledge and curriculum knowledge, and I'm sure school librarians have that curriculum knowledge and things as well, you know, it sort of seeps in when you're in a school. Yeah. Um, you know, we're in this really unique position to lead those conversations and broaden our perspectives. It certainly is. And, you know, it, I have felt that first time in a long time that that school librarians have an opportunity and it is about it is about learning and reading and understanding. But it's also about understanding your own skill set. And I think that that's something that not all school librarians realise or understand at this point that that it's not something that's separate. It is something that is part and parcel of, of what we currently do. It's it's a fascinating time. Daryl, do I want to, can I bring you back in? So the other thing also that I just wanted to, to mention here, because I think the another another threat, I think, for school librarians um, is that. I was thinking, um, so Keith Curry Lance, who's famous for the the, the Colorado studies and um, all of the stuff that came after that, um, and I'm not sure how to, how to pronounce her surname, Deborah. I don't know whether it's Cachel or Catchel, um, but they they did an interview recently, and they were saying that uh, from from their work. Um, so there's a real concern about. Um, librarian so li librarian job losses and they were saying that that is often that is often motivated by budget cuts but they were saying that their growing concern is that the real reason for those job losses is a disconnect between school librarianship and and education more broadly so that that over time, librarians have allowed themselves to become disconnected from educational concerns. Um, so, for example, an overemphasis on reading for pleasure and becoming highly expert and specialized in um, that at the expense of other concerns. Um, and I think we've we, we've seen this with information literacy, digital literacy, um, media literacy, AI literacy, that um, that becomes the thing that school librarians can specialize in and somehow that is going to make us indispensable to the school. When actually the school is concerned with children learning um, important context content in subject disciplines and that actually what our concern is with how we enable 
that learning. So, so our concern is with students learning in their subjects um, and collaborating with teachers on um, approaching that learning in a different way. So say, for example, through an inquiry process, learning um, about the world and finding out about the world through a, an inquiry process in a subject. And in that sense, information literacy is, is part of that process. Digital literacy is part of that process. AI literacy is part of that process. So our concern has to be with how children learn and how teachers teach and working with them on that using a range of tools. Now, um, that's where I think, again, um, that the AI is a potential distraction because we invest time and energy learning how the tool works and the vocabulary and the technical terms that are related to the tool and not um, educational philosophy, pedagogy, um, the, the, the practical difficulties that teachers are facing in the classroom and how we can add value to that and make ourselves indispensable in that learning process, regardless of which tools. Do you not think, though, that we are in a position where many, many school librarians are um, have arrived in, in a school without a qualification, without understanding what the role of the school librarian is, and quite rightly have hooked on to the reading for pleasure in order to be able to make themselves useful based on what schools' expectations of school librarians currently is? So they're, they're fulfilling the role that schools... Yeah currently understand or think they understand the school librarian does is something like ai an opportunity for those school librarians to find the hook i suppose is the right word to bring themselves back into that conversation showing that they are um you know, because it's such a new tool, such such new technology that or or in its current form, new technology, that they have a reason to be part of the conversation. Kay, can I bring you in? Yeah, I was just thinking about I really agree with what Daryl said about how it's really important that school library staff, whether they're school librarians, teacher librarians, unqualified in librarianship in any way. If they're working in school libraries, it's really important that they are able to make that connection and contribute and demonstrate their value um, for teaching and learning, because that's the business of schools. Absolutely. And that's what uh, school leadership who are making budget decisions are looking for is how are the students progressing? Because it's like a business selling something. It, unfortunately, the student progress is the output and um, is, uh, and that's what they're making decisions on. School librarians, though, are in a really great position because, and I, and I just want to say there that I personally think that school lab, schools are a lot more than just creating outcomes for learning. And that it's a lot about well-being and shaping people and children for the future and things like that. I was just trying to make a point. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that we're in a really fortunate position because we teachers are pedagogy experts and curriculum experts in their area, in their subject area or in their year level area. Um, and 
teacher librarians can also be are also curriculum pedagogy experts because they're qualified teachers but they have got this synergy that comes through the connection of that teaching and the curriculum and uh, and even if you're not a teacher librarian the inquiry approach and and which is a pedagogical approach and all of those things through an information lens and so there's the whole there is the whole building of skills for students to learn, which for me is the whole umbrella. It's the reading for pleasure, because the more you read for pleasure, the better your literacy skills, which feeds into your capacity to respond to tasks and comprehend and you know, just engage with schooling. Um, so reading for pleasure is great for well-being and for personal enjoyment, as well as having flow on effects for achievement. Information literacy, digital literacies, all of those things are also having flow on effects for students when they build those skills and capabilities in those areas. Uh, all of these things are what we can use to bring together and create resources and uh, locate resources and teach collaboratively and plan collaboratively with teachers, uh, bringing this different sort of combination of skill sets. And AI is an exciting new development and something that I think is really impactful and impacting on the whole information literacy, digital literacy part, because it's basically, I hate using the word disrupt, but it's transforming the information ecosystem, which is where, you know, where we live in school libraries. Um, and we're able to bring that different lens. And this is just one more thing that we can, as Elizabeth said, use to hook people in and say, look, we, we've we know about this and this and you're talking about AI well I can help you with that because of x y and z and then lead them into the information literacy discussion the inquiry discussion because you've got their attention I think it's almost part of our responsibility to be not experts in generative AI or AI but to be across it and be able to talk about it and to be able and to know the some of the implications so listening to things like this conversation and just engaging in things like that because this at the moment is the topical um issue that schools are grappling with and then you know this will this will peter out a little bit and we'll be we'll just bring this in um, you know as one of our many arrows in our quiver uh strings yeah. in our bow i mean it will just be another part of what we do and at the moment, while it's hot, we might as well grab it as another hook, like you said, Elizabeth, but it's not the be all and end all. It's not the wholest, the wholest bolus of school libraries or teacher librarians. It's just one more thing that we can bring to help students learn and to help teachers teach. Absolutely. It's something it's always been part of school libraries, hasn't it? To to remain on top of the the newest, latest technology in order to support the teaching and learning to, you know, lots of teachers, you know, we, we talk as if every teacher is currently using ChatGPT. We know that that's not true because most of them haven't got time to 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 mark their books, never mind, you know, um, spend hours and hours on ChatGPT. Um, so, so, you know, even though we're sort of halfway through this year almost, it only came out last November. So, you know, by having these current conversations, we are still at the beginning of this, this journey. And actually, 
you know anybody listening you you are not too late I suppose is the is the message because because being part of the conversation is is part of the learning journey um Daryl you've got your hand up can I bring you oh Jenny you've got your hand up can I bring you in <laughs> um, I think um I think just just as a secondary point the 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 thought of teacher lots of teachers are not um into chat gtp and using their lessons and whatever and whatever we have to remember that chat gtp isn't the only thing absolutely there are all sorts of ai tools out there for teachers um there are uh, teaching websites where they can they can do really practical things like um finding exam questions and answers so where exam board websites can be quite difficult to navigate sometimes you can ask for can you give me some questions on this and some answers on this and and teachers are using them for very practical things like that um there are also slightly more insidious ones where um the websites can help you to write reports or help you to um write school policy and all sorts of interesting things like that that i think are conversations we need to be having with teaching staff um because some of that is helpful and useful some of that is concerning and any of those tools you can use, but the way you use them is important. Um, but in terms of what, what Kay was saying, I think um, what we're really talking about is this expertise in AI as a part of our toolbox, because we have a big inquiry toolbox and we will choose different tools for different occasions. So um, I'm not you can probably tell I'm not big on AI in schools at the moment, but it has its place. Um, there's a psychology teacher who was interested in getting her students to look up studies and compare studies and use those um, to back up the stuff she was doing in class because it's something they have to do. And something I came across on your podcast was um, Illicit, which I'm not wild about as a tool in general. It's not something that I want to use um across the board with my EPQ students because I think it's got so a fair few issues um but actually for what this teacher wanted to do it was perfect and because as a librarian I'm plugged into all sorts of different channels like your podcast like the fossil group website like all the library magazines I see a lot of this stuff that individual subject teachers wouldn't necessarily and actually our job is to keep plugged into the professional community so that we can learn from each other and share stuff that everybody in the professional community doesn't have time to do individually but if one librarian finds something that's useful and shares it with the rest of us we can then be the portal into our school and that is part of what makes us the inquiry experts it's part of what draws us in we've just been um helping to draft the academic integrity policy for the school and part of the reason we're drawn into that is because we're plugged into those communities that understand this stuff. That's so important. Um, I, I, that sort of leads me on to a, a, another question that I have about how school librarians can demonstrate that they should be involved in this high level policy thinking as part of their expertise. How do, do you know, Daryl and Jenny, you are very involved and enveloped into your school community how would a school librarian who maybe is is currently sitting on the outskirts of the curriculum they've got a big mountain to climb that in order to be able to get to high level policy thinking 
what are the stepping stones? How can they even start that journey, do you think? So if 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 I can be blunt, um yeah. to return to 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 start from a point that you made a bit earlier, um when when I became a school librarian, uh so I stumbled into school librarianship. Uh I had no qualification in librarianship. Uh I had no experience of working in a library, let alone a school library. I, so that was 2003. Um, I've had to teach myself everything that I know about school librarianship. Um, and I was lucky in that I stumbled across books, uh, people who articulated what I instinctively felt. So it's taken me over 20 years to demonstrate to senior leadership in schools that my concern is the same as their concern. So as a school librarian, my concern, my, my actual concern, my fundamental concern is not the library. It's not the books in the library. It's not the resources in the library. My fundamental concern is with students learning better and teachers teaching better. And in that case, for both um, students learning better and teachers teaching better, it's differently. Um, so I, I have had to work myself over many years to the point where I can convincingly and compellingly talk to, to senior leadership in a school about how what I as a librarian and what um, me as head of the library um, as a department can do to make teaching and learning better in and and, and that's not at, at the end of the day it's not all measurable in the way that um schools need to measure stuff but but if i can't do that then to be absolutely honest i have there is no room at the table for me yeah. so i'm not going to i'm not going to have an opportunity to write the academic integrity policy because i'm a specialist I've got specialist knowledge in generative AI. I've got an opportunity to write the academic honesty policy because I understand the learning process and I understand that learning depends on information and that um, there are skills that are required. Those skills need to be developed systematically and progressively. I know what those skills are. I know where they fit into the process. I know what tools are helpful, what tools are potentially unhelpful and potentially dangerous. Um, and I can connect that with what the school is doing and with what co with colleagues outside of the library in classrooms are doing. Now, that takes time and effort. And unfortunately for us in the UK, we don't we aren't in a situation where we can benefit um, so I'm not 100% sure 
below master's level. But certainly, you know, both Jenny and I were teachers. We became librarians. We did professional qualifications in librarianship and learned absolutely nothing about school libraries. Yeah. <laughs> so there is no specialization in school librarianship at a master's level. Yeah. Um, so our situation in that sense is a little bit different to Australia, um, um, America, Canada. Um, but I think unless librarians view themselves first and foremost as educators, as teachers who have very specific knowledge and skills of the that they can bring to the learning process, even if that means reframing the learning process, and are actually ha have invested in that, then I, I I will be very surprised if all of a sudden someone's going to say, well, look. You know, you know, you know everything that there is to know about generative AI. Um, please come and help us write a policy on academic integrity. Yeah, can I curriculum policy? Yeah, okay, <clears throat> but there has to be a starting point, Absolutely. And, I, and I agree. So, can I bring Jenny back in? <laughs> I think a lot of our starting point is about relationship, but it's also about identity and what we believe ourselves to be so we have an advantage in a sense because having been teachers i think a lot of librarians feel um school librarians feel a sort of gap between being a librarian and being a teacher and there's some sort of diffidence there um whereas having been both i can tell you there's no difference in a sense we're just different specialists in the school um, so when I go and work with a teacher on an inquiry, I am very confident in the fact that I am the inquiry expert in this partnership and the teacher is the subject expert. So we are two experts on an equal level. Mm. And I think your sense of identity in yourself and you have to build that over time. It doesn't happen instantly. Your sense of identity comes across. So when you go to someone after a lesson, um, if you're not getting out into lessons, then maybe you need an opportunity to do some lesson observation. And a lot of schools are quite happy for, um, want staff to be observed, staff are happy to be observed. So pushing into the, if your school has a lesson observation week, well, can I come and observe some lessons? Then you can talk to teachers about what they're doing. Then you can say, oh, I saw what you did. Have you thought of this? When you're um, even looking at things like generative AI, you know the school's got to do a policy about that. Don't sit back and wait for them to come to you. Make an appointment with the director of studies or headmaster and say, this has got to go into our policy somehow. Look, I've drafted something. Do you think we could have a talk? So we can't wait for schools to invite us in. We have to start those conversations and it's hard and you have to have confidence in yourself and actually being part of professional communities of other people who are maybe a few steps ahead on the journey or at the same stage and also struggling that you can talk to each other and build each other up and say you know what actually I know what I'm talking about I should have the confidence to be able to go to my headmaster my line manager and say I know what I'm talking about here I can help you and that's always what we're doing as a school librarian I know what I'm talking about I'm an expert in this whatever this particular thing is necessary in the school I would like to say learning is always this I'm an expert in learning, therefore I've got something to say and I practically can do this that helps. Do you want to have a look? Perfect, thank you. Kay, can I bring you back in? Yeah, I was just going to say I agree totally with what 
Daryl and Jenny were saying, and it, I don't think it matters, like Jenny was saying, whether you have a teaching qualification or not. Uh, in Australia, we have the Master of Education in Teacher Librarianship. You are must be a qualified teacher to be eligible to enrol in the Masters. So, um, but that doesn't mean that our, our TLs um, uh, any more uh, finding it any easier to get that space at the table um, or, or to uh, it's it's a constant advocacy it's a constant um, need to step up and initiate and and go and say push to put yourself forward and that's a really uncomfortable thing because a lot of us were drawn to the role because we aren't salespeople or we would have gone and, you know, gotten become a, a salesperson or a lawyer or something else if our personalities perhaps were a little bit more pushy or um, outgoing or, but, but it is something that is really important that we do. And I think that relationships, like Jenny said, is so key. Um, one thing we always talk about in our course is when you're designing your library policies and your library strategic plan to make sure it aligns with the school strategic plan and the school strategic goals. Because you are, like Daryl said, working towards the same goals. You are part of the school and working towards the same goals. It's about learning and teaching and well-being of students and all of those things that you're working towards as well. And by aligning, you can demonstrate to leadership um, when you share that with them and they may not ask for it or even be interested in it. But when you share that with them, um, you, they will, you will be able to say, this is how I am contributing to the overall school strategic plan. And then there's little things you can do to build those relationships because as the school, as someone who's working in the school library, you are the one who is um, finding new resources and locating information and articles and um, texts and, and online you know, things. So when you find something good on any particular topic, but in this case, if you find something good about um, generative AI and education, share it with the leadership. So this is what I'm say, this is what I'm reading. And I thought you'd be really interested too. I thought in particular, this section that I've highlighted really related to our school in these ways, you make it really explicit that you're thinking about the whole school and the student population and the community and learning and teaching, and you're bringing these things in, make those connections for leadership about what you do in the school library and how that relates. Because if you don't make that explicit, they're probably not either going to think about it or even re or realise or even know, like it might not even, they don't know what they don't know. You've got to bring it up, you know, make it really clear to them by drawing those connections. And and that's in any area. I mean, some someone that I really respect, Jenny Lucas, said once that, she reads what the principal's reading. So she finds out what they are reading in terms, what's what's their area that they're of leadership even, you know, are they reading a particular leadership textbook? Are they re reading a particular publication on a particular educational concept? She reads that too. So she can talk with them uh, using that language about those things that the leadership are interested in and spending their, investing their very limited time in and making those relationships and connections those ways. And it, 
it's hard and it probably feels unnatural, but it's what it's what we have to do if we want to continue to advocate for the role and yeah, make it um, make it just an automatic part of every school. Absolutely. <clears throat> Funny enough, um, a few weeks ago I did a podcast um, talking about the the link with the the strategic plan. Um, uh, a gold a golden thread I think it was called yes um so I'll put that in the show notes so that you can make that link <laughs> um I'm just going to pause just a second to take the opportunity before I ask my final question to promote my membership to any schools looking for ways to support collaboration between the teacher and the librarian primarily in helping to boost independent learning literacy and well-being through your school library if you're not sure how to make this happen, my membership program offers training and support for school librarians and teachers and creates opportunities to engage across the whole curriculum. You can find more information in the link in the show notes below. So let's go to our final question for this morning, because I can't believe that we've already been talking an hour and we could continue so much longer, I'm sure. So, so we've touched on it just a little bit <clears throat> about about the fact that school librarians need to um, learn more, be part of schools. Where would you say that their best place to start in getting this kind of support, apart from my membership, of course? Um, but let's go with Daryl first. Um, you know, where is the support? Uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the fossil group here. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that that that, that is a, a second part of it because I think what we've touched on about the, um, so the librarian's identity and purpose, identity and purpose are linked, um, and when I was being blunt before, I was trying to be encouraging <laughs> because I've said for as long as I can remember that an education that doesn't have the library at the center. So an education in which the library isn't integral um, is, is an impoverished education. Yeah. Um, so I've plugged away for 20 years because I believe so strongly in the importance and the value of what we potentially can bring if we and others recognize that. So the first thing that I'd say is um, one of the things that was most helpful to me was when I looked closely at the IFLA School Library Guidelines um, because the, 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 the manifesto says that the library is integral to the educational process. We can only be integra integral to the educational process if we understand what the educational process is and what it is on an instructional level that we bring to that process. So the five core um, instructional activities of the librarian um, are essential if we are to know, I think, what we need to do and are to be disciplined about devoting sufficient time and attention to all five of those activities. Because if we don't, then we've got an unbalanced program, instructional program. If we've got an unbalanced program, then 
we get this disconnect between the library and education more broadly in the school. So we end up doing certain things that are either familiar or comfortable or easy or um, more attractive uh, without devoting sufficient time and attention to other aspects of the program that are, are possibly even more important at given points. So we need to know who we are and what it is that we ought to be doing and then be disciplined about that. And then because from my perspective, inquiry is central to and encompasses those five core instructional activities. So I think we can achieve all five through an inquiry-based approach to teaching and learning. Um, being part of a community of inquiry. So we are trying to transform our schools into a community of inquiry, but we ourselves need to be inquirers and need to be in a community of inquiry, which is actually where the fossil group came from and why we try to be as disciplined as possible about reflecting on what we're doing and learning in the fossil group forum and sharing resources that we've developed in the forum. Um, because we grow in doing that, hopefully other people grow from that and we grow, continue to grow from their feedback and input back into the community. Fantastic, thank you. And what about you, Jenny? What would you say? <laughs> I, I would definitely say you have to be part of a community. And sometimes that can be a local community if you have a really active schools library service or librarian community group. But sometimes within that community group, you don't have enough people in your situation or enough people who are trying to do what you need to do. And I would also say the fossil group for us is a, a real place to go. But what I would really encourage people is that it's not a passive thing. So while everything on there is free, you can access it without logging on and everyone's welcome to do that. Actually, I learn the most by reflecting on what I'm doing and engaging in conversation with other people. So I would really encourage people to sign up for the forums, which is free, um, and think aloud because we learn through conversations. Um, we learn much more through conversations than just through reading other people's stuff. Um, and it's a place where you can, where we can dump stuff together. So, and we have on the, the Nature of Inquiry and Information Literacy Forum, we've got a topic on ChatGTP and other generative AI. And so many people have been putting in really interesting stuff that they've read elsewhere. So it collates it for you. And when I need to go and write a policy or I need to run a lesson, I can go back into that forum and say, oh, somebody's put this, somebody's put this, and I can pull it all together. Um, and we learn so much more together than we do on our own. Perfect. Thank you, Jenny. Sabrina, do you want to have a final word? Not really. Everybody else is saying lovely stuff. You've been listening to it all. That's perfect. I don't, just don't want to leave you out this week. I'm very no, bad. No, I think everyone's right. It's community. It's talking to each other. It's bouncing off each other. It, because as we keep saying, being a librarian can be incredibly lonely. And actually, there's loads of us out there. And we just need to reach out and say hi. Perfect. Thank you so much. And Kay, final word from you. 
Yeah, PLN, Personal Learning Network. That was that's been a big part of my research previously, and um, and my research has found that yes, you can learn a lot by uh, being a part of uh, developing a network and just in lurking and reading, and but you get so much more out of it when you contribute and interact and engage. Um, as as well as you know, read and take uh, advantage of all of the things that are being shared. So most definitely your PLN. I also think that it's really important that if as part of your PLN you're in groups like there's lots of Facebook groups now about teachers and AI and that you read those with your um, school librarian hat on and your spidey senses really turned up because there's a lot of people talking about it and. Uh, none of us really are experts and some people are really good at sounding really confident and knowledgeable and really some things are either incorrect that they're saying or they're ill-informed or they're very specific to their context. Um, in Australia, we've got completely different copyright um, laws in terms of fair dealing and, and whereas the US has got fair use, I'm not sure what the UK has, but conversations where there's stuff about copyright and, and chat GPT, you know, it's it's completely incorrect for Australians what some people are seeing in US chats and things like that. So be really aware of the context and where people are coming from. And just because they sound convincing, it doesn't mean they know, they might know, but just double check everything. Um, and also there's loads of lo uh, online courses. I just noticed that Google's put one out. Um, there's some really good ones for AI for teachers, but again, keep your, you know, critical, hat on Google's giving you us a free AI course why <laughs> um, so I mean it's I haven't actually looked at it yet but it, it's probably very good and it'd be very up to date but just always ask yourself you know why <laughs> things are being offered for free and things like that and then taking advantage of things like this podcast and blog posts of respected leaders in this field and things like that there's so much at the moment that to read that it's it's impossible to stay on top of it absolutely absolutely well this conversation could like I said before could go on forever um thank you so much for giving me your time today Kay Jenny Daryl Sabrina um it's been really good to revisit this topic and I hope that we've given our listeners some food for thought I'm sure it won't be long before we are going to talk about it again um, any tools we talked about will be in the show notes below. As always, if you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard today, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget to, to subscribe to my podcast um, so you don't miss out on future discussions. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>